Okay, we are back with Mansfield Collins, a criminal defense attorney, and Bobby Grace, a veteran prosecutor. And Bobby and Mansfield have been with me every step of the way as we have been covering, KBLA has been covering, uh, the trial of Mark Ridley Thomas, USA versus Mark Ridley Thomas. And now we are at the appeal level. Dion Raymond, our justice correspondent, uh, who has also been such an integral part of this coverage, wasn't able to join us today. Uh, but Bobby, uh, you heard Alyssa Bell, very esteemed appellate attorney, say that she's very hopeful that there's going to be uh, an acquittal, a reversal of the conviction that could cause essentially, you know, be tantamount to an acquittal in this case. Tell us about your experience with appeals of bribery cases, cases of this nature, and what the percentage chance of that happening. Well, first of all, um, good evening, Ariva. Um, good to see you again. Uh, Mansfield, always good to see you. Um, so let, let's start off with the, the proposition that uh, in appellate court, it's very, very difficult to overturn a federal conviction. And the reason why is because, as, as you pointed out, uh, generally, um, federal prosecutors don't go to trial unless they have a very strong case and they feel that uh, any conviction that they obtain would be bulletproof, that, that there wouldn't be uh, a chance for any appeal. Um, I think that Ms. Bell um, laid out the case very um, cogently as to why she believes there's an excellent chance of a, a acquittal here. And basically her argument is something that uh, you, I, and Mansfield have talked about um, after um, Dr. Ridley Thomas's conviction, that this is a novel approach, uh, or if you would call it a stretch, in terms of using the honest services statute to convict Dr. Ridley Thomas of bribery. And Ms. Bell pointed out that this is not the traditional quid pro quo, I give you this, you give me that, uh, and I line my pockets um type of bribery case that just wasn't um what happened here and i think um in their own papers the government um acknowledges that and said that this is the only way that you can get to an individual like dr ridley thomas who's so integrated into um government that you can't uh actually see the traditional bribery uh, aspects of something. But uh, one thing that Ms. Bell pointed out in her papers, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more, um, the statute, she's arguing that the statute for bribery don't fit um, what this, this honest services um, argument that they're trying to make and that the Supreme Court uh, has cut back considerably on what the government can charge with respect to bribery, even in cases where an individual was lining their pockets. And that's simply not the case here. So um, I would argue that this is different than the usual federal prosecution. And Dr. Ridley Thomas has a good shot here uh, of the arguments that um, Attorney Bell was trying to present. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Mansfield, uh, Dion Raymond, who was in that courthouse every day, like I said, wasn't able to join us, but you 
likewise spent a lot of time inside of that courtroom. So uh, in some ways, you're like a proxy for Dion today. And of course, you have years of experience <laughs> prosecuting, I mean, defending uh, these kinds of cases and being in federal court uh, rooms. And as Bobby said, there, there is this notion in the legal community that if a prosecution is brought by the feds, it's got to be airtight because you know they only prosecute those cases that they know they can win and that they can have held up on appeal. But as Bobby also said, from the beginning, our legal analysis, the four of us collectively, have always believed that you know with every rule, there's an exception. And to the extent there is an exception to that rule that the feds always have an ironclad case that this was that exception. Uh, what have you seen in the appellate brief that reinforces for you that this case against Mark Ridley Thomas was in fact the exception to the feds always have an uh, ironclad case? It's good to be back with you, Areva, and it's always be, been it's always great to be with uh, Bobby as well. Um, well, in the beginning, as Bobby uh, indicated. This case just didn't seem, well, let's put it this way. In the beginning, there's a perception that if the government comes after you with an indictment, that they have the goods, that they have you. And so the community, the legal community in Los Angeles uh, was concerned that, oh, my goodness, they must really have something on Dr. Thomas. But as it turned out, when we actually saw the evidence unfold, we were actually more shocked at that point than we were with the initial indictment because we didn't see any evidence that was sufficient to connect any conduct of Dr. Thomas to the statutes that he was charged under. And the, the brief sets forth many grounds for appeal. I mean, and by the way, Ariva, you know, we just received this appellate brief just moments ago. <laughs> But we're doing our best to go through it. So you can't read 85 pages in a couple of minutes, <laughs> Mr. Mansfield-Collins? Is that but what you're can, telling can, me? <laughs> but I can tell you this. They have filed a tremendous uh, opening brief. And the opening brief, like, like uh, Bobby said, in the very beginning, we had this view about this case, these facts. Why is this a criminal conduct case on these facts? Why does, on these facts, why does it, involve or trigger honest services. We never saw that connection. We never saw a quid pro quo. We never saw uh, the object of the conspiracy. The co-conspirator, alleged co-conspirator, never testified. And all of those claims are part of the appeal. And I think the, the thing that stood out when I read the appeal was something that sort of now sort of gives me comfort in, in the fact that I couldn't understand what the government was actually trying to do here with this novel case. The appeal says the fraud statute does not extend to a public official's receipt of perceived reputational benefits. Mm. So what the, what the appeal is saying is we have to see an actual quid pro quo of something that involves property under the traditional notions of, of what a thing of value means, property. This idea that Mark... Hey, let me just stop you for a minute, Manson, because you're in the courtroom and that's one of the arguments that the prosecution made in some of the post-trial motions is that there was, quote-unquote, this reputational benefit. Uh, Mark Ridley Thomas did not want information about his son to get out to the public, and that was the benefit in the, quote-unquote, quid pro quo. 
And this opening brief shoots that down and says, that's not enough. A reputational benefit is not a benefit under this federal statute. And by the way, if that were, if that was to become the law, as this brief says, this would make all public conduct of public officials, all conduct of public officials questionable, and it could trigger investigations because the perception, what public official isn't concerned about his or her reputation. But but more so than that, Mansfield, they didn't prove that in court. No, absolutely. There was no, men- yeah. there was no mention of that. So how do you, you can't argue something in a, a post-conviction brief for appellate stuff that wasn't brought up at trial. That This is amazing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think they, like like Bobby said, normally, it's very difficult to win a case on appeal, but there is the exception, as you pointed out, Ariva. And this case, from the very beginning, when the first amount of evidence was being introduced by the prosecution, we saw exception, exception, exception. We saw the non-existence of facts uh, related to the charges, and and the appeal highlights that. Yeah, hold that thought for me, uh, Mansfield. When we come forward, I want to talk about jury instructions, the role of race in this appeal, because it's highlighted in this appellate brief, and educate our audience on Amika's briefs. We're going to see a lot of those filed over the next couple of weeks. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and in this segment of Ariba Martin in Real Time, Hour 2, we are talking about the federal bribery trial and conviction of former L.A. City Council member, former L.A. County Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, uh, with two of the best legal experts uh, around. They have been with me from the beginning, as KBLA has been the only radio and streaming a network to provide gavel-to-gavel coverage of this trial, which has so many implications beyond what happens to Mark Ridley Thomas. Obviously, we care a great deal about him. He has been an outstanding public servant uh, in L.A. and across the state of California. But we are in an election year. And who is sitting as a judge in a federal trial? Who those... uh, U.S. attorneys are that are prosecuting cases. All of that gets decided because of elections. So talk to us, uh, Mansfield. Mansfield Collins is here, Bobby Grace. Talk to us about why in this election year, uh, having conversations about this Mark Ridley Thomas trial is is so important because somebody may be sitting at home saying, I live in New York or I live in St. Louis or some other city outside of Los Angeles, and this doesn't impact me. Help folks understand why this impacts all of us. Trials do send a message to the community at large. And in this case, the community may be Black elected officials or it just may be Black male defendants. And cases like this during election years are important because listen to what the politicians may be saying. Are they saying things that support equal treatment under the law, due process? fair hearings? Or are they saying things that basically undermine all of those constitutional rights and protections? So this case is extremely important. And it's almost as if Dr. Thomas didn't want this role to be a uh, a crusader for uh, the Black male defendants or Black elected officials. But it just simply turns out that this case is going to end up being a landmark case. And And I think that 
for someone to carry the responsibility of being in this position, I think there probably was no better or stronger Black elected official than Dr. Thomas, which he has always shown this community and even nationwide his commitment to civil rights for everyone. And for that reason, he was probably the right person at the right time to have to bear this responsibility. Because most people, as Bobby Grace will tell you, even when they're innocent, would have entered into a plea agreement. And he didn't. Yes, that's such an important point, uh, Bobby. Uh, you are a veteran prosecutor, and you know, particularly when it comes to Black and Brown defendants, even when they are innocent, as Mansfield said, they often will enter into plea agreements because they don't have the financial wherewithal to hire private attorneys. Uh, they may be frustrated with the public system of, of public defenders, both at the state and federal level. They may be receiving so much pressure. You guys, with all due respect, have a way of making folks uh, feel quite intimidated. Uh, and they just may feel like, you know, they want to get on with their lives. So they'll just take their chances. And to that point, Mansfield, I remember having debates with people about Mark Ridley Thomas's uh, case before it went to trial. And I, I, several people would say to me, why doesn't he just take a plea and try to do 12 months? He'll be in and out very quickly or... You know, he's an elected official. He's going to go to some cushy camp. He's not going to go, you know, to some uh, abusive or, you know, very uh, oppressive prison. So there were people in the Black community, Bobby, who thought Mark should have just taken a plea deal, did his, what they call, little time in federal uh, penitentiary or a federal prison or a federal, you know, camp and be out and go on with his life. Uh, is that what you typically see as a prosecutor, that that is what happens to the minor majority of Black and Brown defendants? Well, I would like to say that, Ariba, that the majority of people who, certainly in prosecutions that I've been involved in, and you know, <laughs> hopefully uh, my office uh, um, have brought forward that um, there was sufficient evidence to for a jury to find that those individuals were guilty. And so those individuals made a independent decision to avail themselves of a plea disposition. There, there are several reasons why somebody might decide to take a plea. But what, what you and Mansfield brought up are certainly um, things that have plagued the criminal justice system and something that all of us um, should be working toward to try to eradicate. No one should be um, felt that they are being forced to take a plea, even though that they are actually factually innocent. That simply should not happen, no matter what uh, is happening within the criminal justice system. Um, we talked a little bit about this, that perhaps um, Dr. Ridley Thomas paid a price for going forward and uh, rejecting any offer that may have been proffered um, by the government in this case, uh, and certainly we do know on the federal side that uh, there is this jury trial tax that uh, the government will come after you harder if you choose to go the route of um, demanding a jury trial. So everything that Mansfield said about Dr. Ridley Thomas and his reputation in the community and the fact that he chose uh, to avail himself of his constitutional rights and go to trial uh, does speak um, well of him going forward, not only, you know, what happened with respect to the trial, but uh, it may bode well for him in terms of the appeal. 
Yeah, people may not remember uh, that trial tax. We talked a lot about that. And, and that is what is commonly known as, you know, what happens when you do decide to exercise your constitutional right to have a jury trial, which is a right that all defendants have, that, and if you are unsuccessful in all or part of that, the federal prosecutorial system will be harsh, will be harsher than and harsher and what it typically means is harsher in recommendations for sentencing so whereas they may be more lenient and more willing to offer or to negotiate or try to compromise with you on a, a lesser sentence if you do go to trial and you know quote unquote make them them being the prosecutors try this case uh, oftentimes you will see them requesting on the higher or highest range of the sentencing guidelines let's talk though mansfield about the issue of race uh, many in the community always believe that race was a factor in this case and should have been uh, introduced into the trial in a more significant way than it was. How is race coming into this appeal that was filed today by Margaret Lee Thomas's team? Well, um, the standard of proof for the appeal is going to um, read as follows, I believe. And that is that in order to prevail on the appeal, the appellant, Dr. Thomas, is going to have to show that there was no rational basis for any trier of fact, the jury, there was no rational basis for them to reach a verdict beyond a reasonable doubt on all of the counts charged. Well, rational basis? Rational basis means they have to come to court and be extremely open-minded and objective and set aside any of their own biases, racial biases, stereotypes. And unfortunately, our experience with the criminal justice system in picking, picking jurors, especially jurors that don't come from your own community, and in federal court, the jurors in this case came from about five or six different counties. And those counties did not have a majority uh, black or brown population. And so you end up with uh, jurors that are coming into court with their own biases, their own elements and, and remnants of, of race or discrimination or stereotypes or attitudes. And it is a problem for the criminal justice system. It does uh, create a problem where a lot of black male defendants and a lot of brown male defendants uh, argue oftentimes that they can't receive a fair trial because like in this case, the only two African-American female jurors were dismissed and stricken from jury selection by the prosecution. And that is one of the grounds for the appeal in this case, the removal of two black African-American female jurors. And remember, when I say African-American female jurors, I'm talking about mothers, mm -hmm. sisters, daughters who bring their real life experiences about the criminal justice system, about understanding the language of a black defendant. Well, all of that was eliminated and there's no stronger element of, of reason and objectivity than, than from a female, an African-American female juror on a jury. And they eliminated that and they did it unconstitutionally and that's one of the grounds in this appeal. That ground by itself, if it's upheld on appeal, will result in a reversal of this case. Just that ground. Wow. 
Uh, powerful stuff there, Mansfield. Thank you for that. Uh, again, race has always been an issue. And this is another example of how race was used in this way, in a negative way, against uh, Mark Ridley Thomas. When we come forward, we're going to talk about other groups that get to weigh in on what should be the outcome at the appellate level. Again, this doesn't happen at the trial level, but there's something unique in our judicial system that allows the community to have a voice in appeals. We're gonna talk about that when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I am back and joining me in this hour, two of the best attorneys in the city of Los Angeles, and I would say probably the state of California. A criminal defense attorney, Mansfield Collins, is here, and veteran prosecutor Bobby Grace. They have been with me throughout the gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage that we have provided right here on KBLA uh, for the trial and now the appeal of the case, the bribery case brought by the federal government against former city uh, council member and former LA uh, supervisor, county supervisor, Mark Ridley Thomas. So the day a lot of folks have been waiting for, the day that the defendant in this case, Mark Ridley Thomas, got to file his appellate brief. We talked to his uh, attorney, one of his lead appellate attorneys earlier in the show. She told us that brief is a whopping 85 plus pages. Uh, the prosecution has about two months in which to file its reply and, well, its opposition. And then uh, the defense, Mark Ridley Thomas, will have another seven weeks or so to file a reply. Oral arguments are expected to happen sometime this summer. They're going to be really short, 15 minutes uh, each. Sometimes no questions from the judges, sometimes lots of questions. Uh, but we'll continue to file the appeal. Uh, Mansfield, something really interesting happens in our judicial system when you get to the appellate level. It doesn't happen uh, at the district court at the trial level other than through the testimony of witnesses. But now the community gets to weigh in uh, by way of what's called an amicus brief. Tell us what that is and what you expect to happen as it relates to groups that might weigh in and what issues might they weigh in on with respect to Mark Ridley Thomas's uh, appeal. Well, the appellant brief uh, was filed by a party in this prosecution, the defendant, Dr. Thomas, and the government will now file its reply brief, a party in this prosecution against Dr. Thomas. An amicus brief allows individuals who are not related and are not parties to this action to file their sense of what was wrong or what was right in connection with the handling of Dr. Thomas's case. Most amici curiae briefs that will be filed in this case. That's some fancy Latin folks. Don't let it confuse you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what I was trying to say. It just means they're not parties filing the brief. They're interested in major constitutional questions of public importance that have an application beyond just the facts of this case. And they want to make sure that the Court of Appeals gets it right. And so they have invested themselves with time and money and resources in preparing what sometimes are extremely powerful briefs from neutral parties, uh, basically in this case, they will be supporting uh, the appeal and the are in the case being made for a reversal or a, or a outright acquittal of Dr. Thomas on appeal. That has happened in many other cases, and it's going to happen in this case as well. Mansfield, can a, a group or individual file? one of these uh, community briefs you just described in support of the prosecution's 
uh, case? You know, most of the amicus curiae briefs are found are filed by quote unquote legal foundations, legal uh, or colleges, schools of law, professors. It's usually something that is filed by some organization or some individual that has an expertise or specialization in this particular area. And this is an area where most of the courts, a lot of the courts have found that this statute involving honest services is so vague and ambiguous that it can't put anybody on notice of what is criminal and what is okay. And so those, those are the questions that will be raised uh, in, uh, by amicus curiae briefs. They will basically try to argue that this statute, in fact, is unconstitutional on its face. Bobby, do you expect to see uh, an amicus brief filed by some African-American-led organization, like Black women uh, lawyers or Black women scholars or other Black women in particular who are concerned about the exclusion of the two Black women in this case? Might Black women say this is a bigger issue, the exclusion of Black folks and Black women in particular from trials like this, and we want to weigh in? Um, I think Mansfield's correct that there's a lot of different groups uh, who may want to weigh in, um, you know, as a friend of the court and bring forward um, information uh, in the way of a legal brief that kind of outlines what the problems in this case were. Certainly um, what we call Batson-Wheeler error, um, which is what the um, uh, Margaret Lee Thomas's team is alleging occurred with the excusal of the two Black women. Um, I would think that the NAACP, other traditional groups that have supported Black people over the years would want to weigh in because um, jury selection, both on the state side and in the federal government, is very important. And it's a hot topic, Ariva, in terms of uh, what the state legislature has done here in California in terms of limiting uh, how or how you can um, strike or excuse jurors on the basis of race, but now they've extended it to other areas which would help um, black, brown, other poor people in terms of prosecutions that they are facing in both state court and federal court. Yeah, I hope that we see some legacy civil rights organizations like the NAACP weigh in on this case because we know in this country that the you know vestiges of slavery legacies one of the horrific legacies of, of slavery is this, this all white jurors. We can think of so many horrific cases where black folks in the South in particular, and happened in the North, but definitely in the South, where you would have a black defendant tried exclusively by an all white jury, an all white uh, prosecutorial team, uh, you know, a white judge, and you would see cases where people would be convicted on the scantest of evidence, on almost no evidence, and we had to fight. I mean, a part of fighting for civil rights in the 50s and 60s was to correct uh, that issue and to prevent the exclusion, just wholesale exclusion of Black jurors. So uh, Mansfield reminded us at a teach-in a week or so ago how important it is to answer your jury summons and to make sure you respond and that you show up at court because if we are not there, uh, you know, we can't be heard to complain. And our presence on juries make a difference, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, a state court or federal court. 
having black folks uh, participate in the jury process is something that our ancestors, our grandparents, great grandparents, many of them marched, they fought, uh, some even died for us to have this right. So please, please, please take it very, very seriously. Uh, real quickly, uh, Mansfield, let me ask you this about how judges view these friends of the court, amicus briefs. Obviously, they're going to be looking at the main documents filed by the parties that are vested in the case. But how significant, you know, what kind of weight will this kind of friend of the brief a friend of the court brief have, whether it's on Batson, whether it's on this federal statute? It could have a very significant impact because amicus briefs by friends of the court um, address the bigger picture that affects public policy. And so it's not just that they are focusing on the facts in this case, but they're basically saying, and if you allow this unlawful conviction of Dr. Thomas to stand, this is what's going to happen. A, B, C, and all kinds of other individuals who are engaging in non-criminal conduct are going to be snared into or trapped into this new interpretation of law. And so on a bigger public policy, they're going to argue, you must stop here. You must declare that this is unconstitutional. That will be a weighty position for organizations to take like the ACLU, legal rights foundations, and again, professors. Um, specializing in this area that teach courses in this area. Yes, it could have a big impact. Wow. Because yeah. remember, remember, the judges went to law school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so they will listen to certain organizations because those organizations are made up of professors or some of their former professors. Absolutely. Have a lot of power, a lot of influence with the courts. Uh, and we should note that one of Mark Ridley Thomas's appellate lawyers is a former judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, who was appointed by Barack Obama. He's now in private practice. This is one of the first, if not the first case, he has taken as a practitioner not sitting on that court. So uh, Mark Ridley Thomas has a dream team. He has the dean of the Berkeley Law School uh, representing him. He has this former uh, judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. He has Alyssa Bell and her partner. So we're going to track this appeal very closely. going to look at these amicus briefs. We're going to bring you up to the minute uh, information on this appeal. You won't miss a moment of what's happening inside that appellate court if you stay locked in to KBLA Talk 1580. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Mansfield. See you Thank next you, time. Thank you, Reba.